0: following lecture is from a course called Psychology 3717, uh, Memory. It's for the winter term of 2019. By the way, how the hell did it ever get to be 2019? Anyway, hope you like the class, and uh, see you when it's... Memory, which I think it's important to get perspective on where s- things are going by looking at where they've been. Uh, so last time we talked about different things that people measure usually in memory. So looking at the forgetting curve, tower about practice, and specificity. You can use free recall, recognition. These kind of things are used for what's called episodic memory, uh, or sometimes called explicit memory, because I'm asking you, do you remember? Uh, sentence verification is used a lot in looking at semantic memory. Uh, is this a sentence is this sentence true that kind of thing and I I think I ended by talking about priming and the idea of seeing a stimulus and then being able to recognize a sort of perceptually degraded version of it so if the original word was coffee right and then you're better at recognizing this c blank f f blank blank than you are at recognizing some other word fragment. You don't need to have actually seen the word coffee in the list, but it helps. So that's and that's called implicit memory. That's memory you're not you don't need to have to solve the task, and you're not really aware that you're using memory. And the cool thing is with this kind of task, your ability to remember the Word explicitly, so with recognition or free recall, has no bearing on your completing or not completing. Um, the word fragment. All right, questions? That's where we left off. Okay. One of the things you can look at a lot, as well, when you're studying memory, and this is one of the variables you'll see, is people look at practice effects. So it's, things get easier the more you practice. In other words, the more you study something, the better you remember it. That's kind of a gimme, right? Um, People use more and more now they're using imaging uh, techniques, so things like MRI, uh, PET scans even. And looking at errors is important. I talked about this already. Looking at the pattern of errors. I talked about the research that one of my thesis students did years ago. Uh, president, resident, that kind of thing, um, and seeing if it's the kind of errors that would indicate that something was encoded by its sound only or by its meaning. Okay. All right. So one of the things we end up looking at a lot is our models of memory, and this is the classic Atkinson-Shiffrin model. It's funny; it's called a two-store model, even though there's three stores. A classic sort of two-store model of memory, which is that we have two things we call memory: short-term memory or short-term store. You hear a lot today, or really working memory. You hear a lot more than even short-term store, uh, and long-term memory. There are the real memory parts. There's sensory register. This is the Atkinson-Shiffrin model. This is the model that sort of comes up during the cognitive revolution. This is something that's important when, it, when you talk about. Uh, going from behaviorism to sort of a cognitive psychology approach to memory. Okay. And this is the one you're, like I said, you're taught this in intro. As a rule, this is a vast oversimplification, but it helps explain a lot of data, right? So the sensor register, the idea here is that stuff is it's raw, unprocessed information it does not last long. It's measured in milliseconds. How long it lasts, right? And it's basically simply. I hate seeing wires just sticking out of the wall. That scares the hell out of me. They're probably just data things, but it's still scary. Um, so it's just measured, it, it just contains patterns of activation on your retina. Basically, is the, is the notion here. It's completely sensory. This then goes to short-term memory in the original formulation. We'd say working memory now. And when it, go- when it ends up there, if it's not processed at all, it disappears very quickly. Okay. So in other words, most stuff doesn't get asked here. And then we take that information, and we might do something with it, and it gets stored in long-term memory. We also can take things from long-term memory and throw them into short-term memory. The other day I asked you to try to to remember maybe a birthday party when you were five years old or something. And you can do that if you have memory or a false memory of it. Uh, And it comes into short-term memory, and you can play with it a little bit. In some respects, what happens here is the computer analogy kind of works between short-term and long-term memory. Because long-term memory, again, using the computer analogy, which is flawed like any analogy, I guess, this is your hard drive. Long-term memory. Everything's there. This is what's in RAM. This is what's loaded right now. So stuff can come from long-term memory into short-term. For example, you load up Word. So it, it loads into short-term memory, right? So it loads into RAM. And then you take stuff, and then if you save it, it goes to long-term memory. Short-term memory has a limited capacity, is the notion with this model. And we can say what that capacity is, which is 7 plus or minus 2, quote, chunks. What's a chunk? A chunk is the smallest unit of information that short-term memory can store. What's the smallest unit of information that short-term memory can store? It's a chunk. It's exceedingly completely and totally circular, which makes it kind of an issue. It's kind of a problem. Uh, long-term memory in the Atkinson-Shiffrin model is thought of as being essentially limitless. It's essentially limitless. Now, sometimes stuff you see the sort of dotted line here can go from sensory register right to long-term memory. This is the notion that sometimes stuff bypasses short-term memory but somehow it gets into long-term memory, and this is thought of as an explanation for déjà Right. So what happens is. The explanation here is that actually you're not remembering something that you've seen before. It's actually right now that you're remembering, but it feels like it was a long time ago because some of this got into long-term memory. (coughs) Déjà vu is a really hard thing to study because it's hard to make that happen in a lab. It's It's, It's a hard thing to make happen. The other day I talked about feeling of knowing. That's the tip of the tongue phenomenon. That's hard enough to make happen in a lab. We can do it. It takes a long time, but we can. Like I said, things like geographical facts that works. But something like D J V, like I have this weird sense that I've been here before. And it's hard to make that happen in a lab. People have tried. It's kind of interesting work. Uh, Someone of often tries to pick that as their essay topic. It's not an easy one. Question. So. Again, this is stuff I think you probably learned in intro. Now, to get a little more advanced, we talk about things like neural networks. So, this is usually for knowledge. Neural networks have separate nodes or processors, or something, something that's called. And they hold bits of information, and then they're connected together. This is for Recognizing objects, looking at their attributes, that kind of thing, right? So we could have, uh, yeah. So we have a robin, which is an exemplar of a bird. Birds have feathers. So, a robin. Now, robins themselves have things like their red, for example. Now, the thing is, we can think of this it's called a neural network because the rules these things operate on are similar to how neurons operate. In that, these connections get more robust, perhaps, fire more quickly, the more they're used. Like a hebb synapse, right? And that there is inhibition and excitation. So saying this is a neural network is not the same as saying this is happening in your brain. Your brain may be full of neural networks. In fact, I would make an argument that it almost certainly is. But I would also say that it isn't necessarily the case that you have a single cell that represents egg laying. That seems almost ridiculous. Right? Now, this is a great case where we can use sentence verification to study neural networks. To see, we would say, for example, if we had Robin, and then we had Further away because it's a little less birdish. Ostrich. Now, ostriches are birds, and we all know they're birds. Robins are birds, we all know they're birds. But robins are a much better exemplar of birds than, than ostriches. Are. So if I ask you, isn't a robin a bird? You will say yes. And you'll say yes very quickly. Nobody gets these wrong. If you do, there's a problem. You probably it's either a language problem or something else. And we all know that ostriches are birds, right? That's just something we yeah. know. It's something you learned as a kid. But it'll take you longer to say an ostrich is a bird, to say yes to that, than it will to say is a robin a bird. It's not like it's, it takes you, you don't have to think about it, but it actually does take you longer. You measure this in tenths of a second, but it's a reliable effect. Showing that it looks like we're storing the concept of Robin, the concept of Bird, the concept of Ostrich, in something like a semi-hierarchical or quasi-hierarchical neural network. Okay? These neural networks, by the way, are used a lot in computer programming for uh, artificial intelligence, for machine learning, that kind of thing. If you've got one of those voice assistant things, like the Amazon one or the Google Home, or if you're exceedingly rich, the Apple Home Pod costs a million um, dollars. It learns your voice. When you first use it, I have one of those Alexa things. Um, if anybody's listening to this now in their thing, Alexa, turn off the lights. <laughs> Screwed up somebody's lights. Um, At first, it actually has to learn your voice. And Isabel, my wife, is always saying, it doesn't understand my accent. I keep you tell you have to talk to it more she talks to it, the more it'll understand what she's saying. Right? At first, it didn't quite understand things I said. It doesn't get my sense of humor. No, it's, it's not quite there yet. But after a while, it's pretty good at it. And I can say things across the house to the thing. And then I thank it, which is so Canadian. It's so weird. Like, I do that too. You do it? Okay, so it's not just me. Yeah, it's like, Alexa, turn on the dining room. And Both dining rooms, turn on. Thank you. It's sad. we ask it to sing, Alexa can you sing? Yeah. It'll sing for you. All kinds of different songs. So, that's doing that with neural networks. That's how it's learning these things. Cuz it then will ask you a question, did you mean this? And if you say yes, it using a neural using neural network a kind of software can do this very cool. So, we could go even let's think about recognizing an object going from lines Line orientations to letters, to words, to concepts. Because these are just lines on your retina, and then you almost immediately recognize them as letters and then words, and then the concepts those words represent. Right? This is one area where the study of memory, especially semantic memory, uh, has really had an impact and been impacted by uh, artificial intelligence and computer science. When we start talking about uh, network models and stuff like that, all that stuff comes from computer science, early computer science stuff in the 60s and 70s. And then it, build, it gets built on by psychologists and then it goes back and forth. I know a guy who's to, who builds neural networks, like that's his job, but I once asked him to come and talk, this was years ago, he doesn't work here anymore. I said, why don't you come to my memory class? He said, I've never taken a psychology class in my life. I build software that runs traffic lights in cities, oh. and it learns. Okay. So there's a lot of connections here with these neural networks, and we'll talk extensively about this. And I know Lori talks about this in the cognition class, so I'm pretty sure she does. she does, right? Yeah. Yeah. Some other models we can talk about. This is in the, the, the paper I had you read last week, the Tolving paper, episodic versus semantic. Episodic memory is memory about episodes in your life. They are self-referential. They are about you. They have time and place. And semantic memory, which is knowledge about the world. Tolman always used the example that semantic memory is knowing what breakfast is. Episodic memory is knowing what you had for breakfast. Procedural versus declarative is more related to people like Larry Squire, And he talks about the idea of procedures, how to do things, versus declarative memories. I did this. It's kind of like semantic and episodic. They're exactly the same, but there's a lot of overlap there. Working versus reference memory. Those of you who've taken animal cognition with me last term know that working memory in animal memory studies is the rules of of, 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 of the game, the rules of any task, and reference memory I'm sorry, reference memory is the rules of any task, and working memory is the memory you need to solve one trial of that task. So if a pigeon is presented with a red key, and it pecks at it, and it, and it goes away, so it pecks at that key. That, a key's a light, by the way. I don't know why we call it a key. It's a usually a light a disc the size of a loony, which used to be physical things. Now they're just touchscreens, and it's pretty easy. So it's a red... Launch, it pecks at that, and then it goes away, and then it gets a choice between red or green. And red, it gets food. And green, it gets no food. So the rules of the game, the, the, the reference memory part is what's called match to sample. The sample is the thing that's saw first, so it has to match to it. And the working memory part is, what did I just see? Was it red or was it red? Now, again, those of you who took animal cognition myth, know that it's actually a little more complicated than that, but that's good enough for now. We will talk about animal memory at the end of my part of the course. They share commonalities, all three of these, even the one here that's dealing primarily with non humans So there's, there's... they're sensible divisions. When Tolving first talked about episodic versus semantic, he wasn't talking about different memory systems or, or, or um, anything like that. He was talking about classifying different kinds of results right? and tasks. He wasn't. He eventually, a couple years later, said these are separate, distinguishable memory systems. Different, and he went anyway, called them cognitive modules. Uh, he wasn't saying that at first. And a lot of people, there was pushback. At first, when he wrote that paper that you guys have hopefully read, people were like, this is really good. And then about a couple of years later, he's like, these are actual systems. And people are like, wait, 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 wait. You said it was a way to classify tasks. Now you're saying they're distinguishable systems, cognitive systems in the brain? That's a bit much. Okay. So some conclusions about memory generally. I think it's diverse and exciting, but that's because I I study it. (laughs) But it is diverse in that we're talking about everything, all kinds of species, we're talking about all kinds of different results. It's also pervasively about being human. We know we have memory. It's possible to measure memory indirectly. Uh, In fact, that's almost all we do. And maybe it's going to become more and more directly when we look at things like uh, fMRI and even PET scans. For some reason, the last point never comes up automatically with this. So the computer. There's a place for sort of the neurotypes in there, but I've talked very little about the idea of looking at memory and looking at MRIs. It's a thing. Uh, it's an important thing, but it's, it's infancy. You still need somebody to design the clever behavioral experiments. And even when people have figured out how to, do, how to study all this stuff with imaging, we're still gonna need someone to, dis- to discover, uh, th- to, sorry, to design experiments that are purely behavioral that then have these neural substrates. All right, questions? So shifting gears, let's talk about history. So the history of, of memory studies. Who here's taking history of psychology out of curiosity? Oh, yeah, yeah. Who here's taking it next year? Yay! I'll be teaching it. It'll be fun. There'll be a lot of World War II references. Um, I love history. Uh, if I ever actually told the registrar at Western how many history credits I'd have, I'd have a minor in history, but. Eh. they just started minors in 1988 the year I was going to graduate it was like, oh, whatever and it involved literally filling out a form you didn't just have to click, I want to graduate so it's like, nah, it's not worth it but I've, I've studied history quite extensively uh, so it's sort of a fun thing for me so we're mostly let's begin by talking the 19th century the 1800s and Wundt there's no psychology before Wundt well, okay, sort of People aren't studying memory, cognition, sensation, perception, all these things. Scientifically, they're thinking about them, for sure. But Wundt is the first guy that really does experimental psychology. And in fact, for most people, when you say, when did psychology start? they'll tell you 1879. It's like you ask a biologist, when did biology start? 1858, because Darwin published Origins. Before that, there were people looking at plants, and they thought they were great, but they weren't really biologists. There were people thinking about thinking, thinking about memory, but they weren't studying any psychological phenomena scientifically. And Wundt's had a huge impact on the discipline to the point where everybody in our department, our academic genealogy, goes back to Wundt. And that's not, um, that's not doesn't make us special. That's just the way it is everywhere. You either go back to Wundt or James. Right? So I did my PhD with Sarah Schoenwerth, did a PhD with blah, 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 Wilhelm Wundt. Like, that's just how it works. So he was he had, like, hundreds of PhD students. I don't know how he did that. German efficiency, I guess, is uh, how he did it. Uh, he didn't really study memory. He studied... Sensation of perception, right? Psychophysics, which always makes me think of talking heads. Anybody? Psycho killer? Way older than all of you people. So, but he did start experimental psychology, so we have to, I think, starting there, just acknowledging Wundt and the University of Leipzig is an important thing. Then the best thing I ever did in my life, besides have children and get married, was buy a little fridge to have cream in my office for my coffee instead of, you know, coffee-made, which is just like putting chalk in your coffee. That's so nice. Anyway, Amazon, day after Christmas, 58 bucks, Look, small things excite me now. I'm getting old. <laughs> so he was studying sensation perception, brass instrument psychology, they called it, because he used brass instruments, um, and a pretty important guy in the history of psychology. These are very elemental processes. In fact, this is where you would start. If you were studying, start an experimental science, pissing me off, um, you would not start with something like, well, I'll start with really big social phenomena. No, you would start with, how do I get the external internal? Right? Yes, I'm not going to hit that end. Back in Newfoundland, we used to, there was a professor in our department who was, I like, it's not very tall, it's like five feet tall. So we used to all throw the things the up high that you have to juggle. It's funny. We were horrible people to each other. It was great. There were a lot of blind jokes to me, too. So it wasn't like it was you know, everybody. Ask Dwayne sometime. Okay. Well, you know where you start with, with you want to start studying memory, uh, the history of studying memory scientifically? You start with Herman, Herman Ebbinghaus. There he is. Uh, it's hard to know where the beard ends and the man begins. I don't think he was born without a mouth, and uh, it looks like you ever seen people that put, uh, you know, I don't know, like at some weird state fair, they put kind of all kinds of bees on their face, beard of bees. Yeah. Okay, you haven't? It's just me. Well, that's what he looks like. I was sitting calmly while the bees climb on my face. You know, that's my Ebbing House impression. So. They're all great ideas about memory people are having. People are saying things like memory is probably, uh, repetition is important. People are saying continuity is important. Two things happening together, so one thing before another. Right? People are saying, so they're all common sense things, by the way, that we associate things. There were so- the British associationists, the empiricists, they were associationists, right? like Locke and Hobbes, going back to the 60s and 1700s. Philosophers of the mind were saying things, but no one was testing them. So they're saying all these great things, and then Ebbinghaus is like, you know, we could test it empirically. So here he is. He says, I'm going to test all these ideas empirically that people have had for years about memory. Two things occurring together in time will be associated. Is one of the things that people always say. That's a contiguity. Um, the further apart two things are, the less they'll be associated. That's good. That's uh, good that people forget things and when they forget it, it's pretty much linear. Okay. Repetition is important. Yep. You remember things forever. Like all these things, people were saying them in philosophy, but no scientist was, there was no science of of, of psychology, no no science of memory, so no one was actually testing these things until Ebbinghaus comes along and he's going, I'm going to test this stuff. So it's interesting, too, that behaviorists, the sort of arch enemy of the cognitive psychologist, the behaviorist, they claim Ebbinghaus as as, a, as one of theirs, and so do the cognitive psychologists. Because the, me, the methods he used are basically instrumental conditioning, in, in a sense, but with a human. All right. I really quite like Ebbinghaus. I don't think he gets the... He doesn't quite get, I mean, people talk about him, but they talk more about other people in the history of psychology, and I, I really like them. So what he decided to you do know, is he said, we'll, we'll study nonsense syllables. Memory for nonsense syllables. Not memory for actual words, which is what we do today, because he was smart enough to realize that maybe some words are easier to remember than other words. But if I use consonant-vowel-consonant-trigrams, so just very simple, so a consonant and he's doing this in German. I don't know if this is a word in, in, in German, but, but we'll make something that's not a word in, in English. A kug. There you go, C-U-G. There's one of them. It's too short. These are all too short to be German words. So, <laughs> Yeah, so he gets a list of these nonsense syllables. He generates lists of them. And then he's going to see, study memory for these lists. And they're lists of... I can't remember exactly how many at a time. It was something, it was between like 10 sometimes, and other ones he would go like 50 at a time. Okay. Or more. He's actually studying himself, which is something today we would not do. Well, we might. If you are studying perception and sensation, you can, and it's a basically, is there a stimulus, is there not a stimulus, and... So is, there a stimulus, is there not a stimulus like simple detection and you don't know the order of their stimuli, you can probably study yourself. You probably can. This is an elemental enough process that you should be able to do that. But today we we probably wouldn't study ourselves. Let's let's be honest. So he learned these lists of nonsense syllables until he remembered them perfectly in order. So obviously he had a very big grant or a lot of research of spare time. Because that's a lot of work. And he found savings. In other words, he'd learn a list, and once he'd learned a list completely, he'd then move on to another list of nonsense syllables. He'd then come back again to that list that he seems to have forgotten, and he would relearn it more quickly. Oh, I mean, something like that we find in all memory tasks? He's the first person to actually study it scientifically and find something and show that it's real. Found the important thing here was repetition. The more you repeated, the more you studied, the better you learned. Again, this was something people had been saying forever, but no one had tested it. So you might think like, oh, well, that's stupid and boring and obvious. Yes, and if had no, we have no proof of it, we can't say it's true. Right? One of the things that always bugs me about people when they, when they complain about you know, studies in general, about science, and they say, well, yeah, like we didn't know that. No, we probably didn't really know that. Your common sense thought, thought that, but your common sense would also say the world was flat, you idiot. Sorry, I wasn't talking to anybody specifically in the room. He <laughs> found the classic forgetting curve. So people, a lot of people thought that forgetting was linear, but in fact, as we know, it's not linear. Right. And that forgetting curve shows up in all kinds of learning. It doesn't matter if it's habituation, the simplest form of learning, with you know uh, an aplesia and you poke it, to learning a language, or to riding a bike, or learning a list of consonant, vowel, consonant, trigram. He found contiguity mattered. So people always said if. One thing comes before another. So if Cug, uh, and then the next one was B um, E B E L Bem. If you remembered Cug, you were more likely to remember Bem. Now people also said though that remembering Bem would make you more likely to remember Cug. This is what everybody was saying. All the association is because all their ideas were it's contiguity. And he, in fact, found that reversal was detrimental. It's harder to remember Bem-Kug than it is to remember Kug-Bem. This this sounds like I'm just speaking gibberish. So it's contingency. One thing led to another. Try saying the alphabet backwards. You won't know the alphabet. You're all adults. It's hard. First one's easy, Z. Z, Y, and then what you do, at least if you're me, you go, ABCDFGS, W, X, Y. Okay, X, W, V, U, T, S, R, Q. See how hard that is? Watch how easy it is to do it from words, it's trivial, right? Because the, the letters of the alphabet, the order they're in, is completely arbitrary. A lot of people say, what about numbers? Well, they have meaning. Numbers are, th- that, those, the n- numbers have meaning. If I gave you a, a set of digits in, a, in random order, you'd be screwed repeating it back to me. Backwards. You could do it, but it would be harder. So you've done reversal was detrimental, which went against everything all these philosophers had said for all of these years. So it's, it's contiguity as long as one is contingent on the other. So really it's contingency, not contiguity. I'm, I'm assuming his friends called him Ebby. I, I doubt it, but I'm just going to say they mm-hmm. did. DJ Master Emmy, uh, Ebby was his, uh, was his street name. He found interference. Hey, yes. can you say that last thing you said, contiguity? It's contiguity, but contingency is more important than contiguity. So it's contingent. it's contiguity, but only in one direction. If one item is contingent upon the one before it, yeah. So he found interference. So if he was to lear- he learned one list and then he switched to another list. He'd confuse the list that he had just learned with the one he was learning. Wow, oh, that's good, right? We still talk about interference today. He found the magic number seven. Um, that the easiest thing for him to do was remember a list of about seven items. And I think this one of this week's readings is the one on the magic number seven, I think, is it? Maybe, I'm not sure. Or no, maybe that's later. I think the first one's Epping House. He figured out that chunking would happen, that you would remember things in meaningful bits that were bigger than individuals. So if it was Kugbem, you'd start thinking of a Kugbem, whatever the hell that is, but that you, would, you would turn that into one thing. Das ist der Kugbem. Ja? That's in German um tough room or i've made these jokes so many times and you've heard them he talked about mass versus distributed practice this is something again we talk about it was sort of rediscovered later the idea that studying all at once one of these lists was not as good as studying it in bouts and taking breaks you know like how you eventually learn unless someone tells you but you, you eventually learn that's how you should study in university it's like i'll stop after half an hour and then i'll start again Instead of just saying, I'm going to just look at this and read for hours on end. Right? There's always, in first year, it's always like that. Yeah, I studied all night, like you're wearing it as some badge of honor. And then there's the smart kid who goes, yeah, I studied for three hours. I, it took me six. I took breaks. Watched an episode of True Detective. And that guy does better than you, and then you realize, oh, I think he's got a plan. It's not bad for a little career who, uh, starting out psychology, have, have experimental psychology of memory. So, it's, you know, it's pretty good, it seems to me. It's like, it's exceedingly impressive. There are people who doubt the importance of evidence. Um, I've seen this in print from people. One of the reasons I don't use a book anymore is the book I used to use would slag Ebbinghaus. It's like, well, not not in that book anymore. It's stupid. Um, they say all he studied is himself and all this stuff. Yeah, and he found all these things. So that seems to me that he knew what he was doing or he was faking all his... They aren't saying this, but if he's studying all those things and he's completely biased, then he had such insight that I don't care. Right? So these people are wrong <laughs> if they doubt the importance of having because we... You would still, you could read Ebbinghaus today, which you know it's easy to do, uh, and, and, and it's easy to understand. And they're simple results, and the methods are very similar to what we use today. We don't use these anymore. We found out that it didn't matter if the word was complicated or not, as long as you keep all the words as complicated as each other, then you're fine. It's also the case now that because of and this is in the last maybe 40 years. Um, you can now, it used to be you'd find lists of words that were pre generated that had their frequency in English or whatever language you're studying. Uh, it was a known thing. You can actually do it now. There are, There's software that'll do that. So it'll just grab things from the internet, random pages, and it'll give you lists of words. So it's great. Easy to do. Questions about Ebbingham? Meanwhile, in America, William James, who wrote the first psychology textbook, Principles of Psychology, which you should read, it's just so nice. It's so well-written. It really is. Um, And he's guessing about almost everything, because psychology is 11 years old. And he's like, well, I think I'll write a book. My brother Henry James writes books. That's his brother. For those of you that know novelists, who wrote really psychological kind of novels, which is interesting. Uh, so it's but I think William was a better writer. It's like they had the wrong careers to do with them. He invented the term stream of consciousness. James was big into analogies. Now again, he's trying to describe a brand new field to, to students. And he has very little to base things on, so it's like, well, I'll just use analogies. So he talked about the stream of consciousness. He invented the term train of thought and how you get derailed. Terms we use today. And he said the stream of consciousness has some different parts to it. There is thought that is personal, There's the idea that thought is changing. It's ever-changing and meandering along. It has a direction, but you don't know what that direction is. Right? But it's because of who you are. It's personal. And it's continuous. You can't not think. And thought deals with objects independent of itself. And the stream of consciousness, thought, is interested in some things and not others. Huh. Episodic memory. It's personal. Changing? Well, I guess that's kind of a gimme. It's continuous. Sure. Objects independent of itself. In other words, you could, we can imagine things that don't exist. We can imagine conditions that don't exist or don't yet exist. We can plan. Um, It's interested in some things and not others. It's called attention. Not bad, right? Again, from doing this basically from first principles, he does cite Ebbinghaus a lot when he talks about memory. Because Ebbinghaus was the only person who's done any of this work on memory. So he's like, well, i got to say it's somebody. He talked about what we call primary and secondary memory, which are terms we still use today. He talked about memory without awareness. (coughs) Primary memory is right now, and secondary memory is all the stuff that's not right now, but it's in there, basically. Short-term and long-term memory, sound familiar? Um, Memory without awareness, implicit memory. He got lots of stuff wrong. When you read James, you read stuff and go, oops, that's not true but he got a lot of stuff right for someone who was not who was guessing and had one guy to cite. He basically had Ebbinghaus to cite and that's it. It's also just a fun read. Like it it it's really well written. You if you read it, which it's, you can find it for free. Uh, it's way out of copyright, so if you ever pay for an edition of Principles of Psychology, you've paid too much. Uh, you can get it for free anywhere on the internet. And just read a bit of it. It's just so well written. And you read it and go, I wish all textbooks were written like this. Because it's like there's this guy just telling you a story. And it turns out he's telling you all about how what he thinks psychology works. He's a really special guy. Okay, Binet. um, We don't tend to think of him as a memory guy. We think think of him as as, as an intelligence testing guy, of course. And that is what he developed. Uh, The developed the first IQ test. So he was interested in applying the study of memory to a naturalistic setting to the classroom because uh, in the late 1800s in France they mandated the government mandated that all kids would go to school until I believe 14, which was something no one was doing. It was not uncommon for some kids not to go to school, or for kids to go to school all over Western Europe, North America, or for kids to go to school until grade age, whatever, then until their parents needed them to work on their farm, or until they needed them to go work in a factory. They say, can I have some more? You know, go live in Charles Dickens. But the French government, an exceedingly progressive move in the 1800s, said, everybody's got to go to school. Teachers said, "Yeah, that means there's going to be kids here that don't belong here. We're going to have to be able to spot the kids that are going to need extra help." It's a, it's, it's, it's a very 20th century notion in the 19th century. So, when I say they thought they didn't belong here, I don't, say, I don't think they don't belong at school. Please don't misunderstand. We're going to have to start to of spot what, in fact, Binet said, with the slower kids. Okay. So he used free recall of. Things that you would learn in school, when he was testing and he was normalizing his tests. So words, um, objects you would see, et cetera. Real real stimuli, not consonant, vowel consonant, trigrams. He found the serial position effect. This is the idea that when I give you a list of words, or any item, the first item is remembered better than all the other items, and the last item is the notion is the first item got to long-term memory. The last item still is short-term memory. Right? So that's the serial position effect, which is a pretty robust effect across uh, all kinds of tasks. He also looked at errors, and he found that early errors, early in a list, oh, sorry, early errors people make when they're doing free recall. Are acoustic. In other words, they're words that sound the same as the words that they are trying to remember. Later errors become semantic. They are about the meaning of the word. This is an effect we still see today. So it's not like, so he was, again, we think of him as this guy who developed the first IQ test, but actually he was using memory a lot, and a lot of like, part of IQ tests that are just about memory. Right, there's digit span, things like that. So it's it's not uncommon even in an IQ test today that we still use a lot of memory. Questions about Binet? All right. He was smart. He found that he found what's called the importance effect with prose memory. In other words, the more important something was to a to a story, the more likely it was to remember. I may not remember what color Betty Draper's dress was when Kennedy was shot in that Men. I I'd watch that. I just always watch it. You should too. Um, but I can tell you what happened that day in the story. also increases with age, right? When you're little, you remember stupid things about stories. Use, useless details. Right? When you're older, you learn and you do this just by learning to learn, basically. Metacognition, you just learn to learn. You do, Eventually, after a lot of practice, you learn that the story is what matters. The narrative is what matters, not the details. Oh, sorry, yeah, and yeah, phrases remember better than single words. So when he gave people phrases to remember, they remembered them better than single words because and today we would say because you're able to look at meaning, not just of oh, a whole phrase, which is easier to encode, you put in context, etc. He was the first person to find the importance of what we call gist. So when you ask someone, when you give them a prose thing to read, and then you ask them the story, Most people, first of all, most people think they can recall a complete story in order perfectly. You know, I'm going to give you a five-sentence story. I'm going to give you half an hour to study it. I want you to, and I'm going to test your memory. (laughs) And I come back after half an hour, and I take the story from you, and I give you a distractor task and say, repeat the story back to me. You get the gist of the story. (laughs) You get the story, but the words are oftentimes in the wrong order. He's the first person to find this. So, yeah, not so bad, right? Like, he was really smart. And working really early in psychology. So it's not like, again, he had a lot of stuff. We know all this today. Why would you even know that? Because, yeah, there's been over 100 years of people studying memory. Like, imagine that you were thrown into a situation where you were smart enough to design an experiment, but you knew nothing about the area. And I said, okay, I want you to figure some stuff out. You would go, what? And that's what these people were doing. That's what makes them amazing. Okay, we get into the 20th century. Uh, in North America, the co- cognition, the idea of studying the mind or representation, gets eclipsed by behaviorism, at least in North America, not so much in Europe. Um, it's got some upsides. Uh, introspection was getting was being done with type, type introspection, uh, uh, even Thorndike type of introspection. I think I type introspection introspection thinking about your own thinking that's okay right like Ebbinghaus using himself as his own subject is okay we would call that introspection but it's because you're recalling things that you've presented to yourself that's fine and that's what Wundt really talked about now you're you're a trained observer like you're trained in how to observe your own behavior and your own thinking Ebbinghaus, of course, trains himself, but in Wunt's lab, you would be trained how to study your own thinking. And it was all perceptual stuff. Um, and they're very simple events. Uh, the co- most complicated thing maybe would be the constant Belconson and Primary. Right? Binet was not studying himself, he was studying, it was an applied thing, he was studying kids. So it's a very these are very simple stimuli. Like I said, I, you, can, you still do that today. I have friends who study visual perception, and they often use themselves and one of their graduate students as their subjects, and if two. But it's like everybody's visual system works the same way. It's fine to do that. Now, Kitchener um, came from Wundt's lab, and he moved to the States, and he decided studying... Using introspection involved a lot more of sitting and thinking. <laughs> I have this pet theory that Kitchener didn't actually speak German and he was English. I moved to the states and he actually just thought that what Wood meant was just sit around and guess about how you think. <laughs> I'm not sure that's not true, but it seems that way because then people were getting to the point where they were introspecting so much that they were getting into very complex stimuli and complex ideas and you can't argue with someone's thoughts about their own thinking because their thinking isn't accessible to you right when it be when it gets more complicated than a than a cub them so teacher and his students sort of took it too far seems to me so you can't you can't disprove you can't really study scientifically when I say that I think that my memory works like this and you say no it doesn't I say yeah but mine does (laughs) you can't can't, it's like okay argument over imagine how easy it was to publish back then Uh, I got a man in my head that pushes buttons you can't prove it wrong with that in (laughs) nature so suddenly psychology becomes a joke Uh, And the behaviorists come along and and kind of fix that but go too far the other way. Sorry, I just got an alert on my phone about a trade in the NHL, but it's not an important one. No one cares. Um, Okay, so the behaviorists, that's Watson who gets it really going. And he said, the only thing that matters is the observable. And... Your memory is not observable, is it? Right? It isn't. It's not something you can kick, as I talked about the other day. So he said only the products can be studied. Consciousness can't be observed. And if consciousness can't be observed, neither can memory be observed. And he's right, by the way. You can't look at memory. The difference between those two is I can measure memory, I can't measure consciousness. I don't know how I would anyway. Some of you tell me. That'd be great. But I don't think we have a way of studying of, of measuring consciousness. So it all becomes stimulus response. It's all stimulus response. SR psychology. In North America, that's all psychology is. That's all it is. It got to the point at Harvard where Skinner was that in the psychology department, you were sort of chided for saying what's on your mind. You were supposed to say what's on your behavior. By the way, Watson was an asshole. <laughs> he's a bad man. B.F. Skinner was a really nice guy. I know a guy who did his PhD at B.F. Skinner, and he's like, he was the nicest man in the world. Watson, however, was not a nice man. Watson was eventually fired from his post as an academic uh, for sleeping with his research assistant, which is a thing you're not supposed to do. He then went into advertising, so now he becomes Don Draper. See, there's always a Mad Men connection. So all of psychology is this, in, well into the 50s in North America. It affects Europe, but not as much. I guess Europe's busy rebuilding from you know, World War II Now, some people did resist. The Gestalt psychologists, uh, almost all German, but not necessarily completely, studying perception, but looking at it from a holistic point of view, right? And you know about Gestalt psychology a little bit, probably. Um, They didn't like the reductionism of the behaviorists, which, it's a fair point. (laughs) There was Bartlett. He's a Brit. He sort of fought the good fight, as I said. He... He studied the reconstruction aspect of memory, this idea of gist that b started, which is having people recall stories, and they would reconstruct memories. He was the person that said memory isn't perfect, and it's good that it's not perfect. It's just getting the gist of what's happening, and it's reconstructive. So we talk about construction and reconstruction is what, what Bartlett talked about. Also, I like to think he was like President Bartlett on the West Wing. Again, everything's a TV reference for me. For the last two years, I've been p- pretending Martin Sheen's the president. It's okay in my brain. Everything's fine. Martin Sheen will make sure everything's fine. All right. So this is into the 50s. There are people resisting, but they really aren't too much. There was personality in social psychology a little bit, and it actually has an effect Starting the cognitive revolution. So I suppose you starts so to outgrow the behaviorism. because you know behaviorism is kind of, I don't know, it's boring. So people talk about people studying personality talk about cognitive style. This is in the 50s. They're saying, look, different people behave and think differently. And I'm far enough away from where the animal labs are that no one's going to get mad at me, <laughs> basically. These are people studying personality. Um, People studying motivation talked about cognitive dissonance. Right? And you know what cognitive dissonance is. So again, this is an active process. These are active processes by the mind of the individual. This is something that the behaviorists don't like very much. People studying linguistics, Noam Chomsky, for example, uh, basically saying you can't just learn language by operant conditioning. A lot of it probably is operant conditioning, but it isn't completely. And the thing is, when Skinner tried to tell people, you learn language the way anything learns anything, it's completely operant conditioning. Anytime anybody says anything that absolute, it's almost always wrong. During the war, during World War II, um, the study of computer science started uh, to originally to break German codes, okay, to break the Enigma code. And they came up with this thing called information theory. And information theory is study inputs, processes, and outputs to be able to break codes. We do this mathematically, but you still look at the inputs, the processes, and the outputs. Sounds a lot like memory. Because, in fact, the people who studied information theory published their stuff after the war. Stuff that was a secret. And people studying human, what they used to call verbal learning, not memory, were reading this stuff going, you know, we could use this. So information theory has a big effect. So eventually what happens is we've got all this stuff happening at once after the war, And there's a lot of money poured into science. And that part of that is because um, the Russians get into space first with Sputnik, and we're all going to die from nuclear war. So we all get very scared and start pouring money into science in North America and in Western Europe. And there's a lot more money to study things for everybody. So the atkinson Schiffer model shows up that I talked about today. One of the important pieces of data that happens is happens in Canada. Uh, HM, who's American, who had his hippocampus removed, right? Because he had seizures, um, was studied by Brendan Milner, and who was at it still is at the Montreal Neurological Institute. And Milner has this lesion hippocampus, uh, has it removed basically, uh, because he had epileptic seizures that started in hippocampus, and they didn't know what hippocampus did. So uh, HM wakes up from his operation, and in fact, his IQ's gone up because he doesn't have to take the medication to stop the seizures anymore. So he's a little more responsive. Except he can't remember anybody new or anything new. He can learn tasks, though. Brandon Milner takes him into the lab and has him do mirror tracing. And you may have heard me talk about this in brain Behavior. And so you've got a star shape, for example. And the idea is you've got to trace inside the lines. The hard part of this is you got to do it in a mirror and when up is down and left is right, that's really hard, except it becomes, you learn how to do it. it Take five, ten minutes, you actually are perfect time. it's really easy. But you have to learn how to do it first. Uh, so she does this with him once, with HM, and then she comes back in the lab the next day, or has it back in the lab, and she says, do you remember, uh, so we're gonna do this mirror tracing, and he's like, and she's like, do you remember me? And he's, no, I have no idea who you are. Yet, I mean, have you ever done this mirror tracing thing? No, explain it to me. Oh, okay like that, he's perfect at it, shows savings. So he doesn't have memory, but he has memory. One kind of memory is gone, the ability to form new explicit memories, new episodic memories, but he can do these sort of procedural tasks. So there's Brenda Milder, she's the one on the left. I had the opportunity actually to meet her in, was that 2001? Might have been 2002. That's at Memorial. Um, she, we gave her an honorary degree, which was pretty great. Because then, she, they basically, when someone gets an honorary degree, what happens is they, they give a speech to the graduating class. Hers is the best I've ever heard, by the way. It was amazing. Uh, and she came, and people were like, we need somebody to show her around. I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. And she, even then, was an old lady. Like, she's 100 now in her 80s. And we picked her up at the airport, and on the way in, she mentioned, like, I wanted to talk science with her because it's friend of freaking Milner. All she wanted to talk about was hockey. (laughs) (laughs) She's born in England. Um, Her husband worked on inventing radar. That's how old she is, by the way. And then worked on, you know, like, Things at uh, Deep River, where they got uranium for the bomb, for the Manhattan Project. Like, not a, it's a pretty smart couple. She like, lived in Montreal, still does, and she's like, uh... I want to see. Uh, well, will, we, will there be time for me to watch the Montreal game? Said, uh, yeah, tonight, sure. You just, your hotel room or whatever. Tomorrow night, we have a, there's, a, there's a dinner tomorrow night, and then there's the convocation that you fly home. She said, because I think they're going to be very good. I'm, I'm very hopeful. And then I picked her up, and we talked about the game. And then the next day, it was con- the, the big dinner with the president of the university and all this stuff. And I was sneaking in the back watching the game, at the back of the place where we were eating. And also, I might have been sneaking back there to smoke. And... And I made a good break. And I would then come back to our table, and she'd say, young man, what, what is the score? And then eventually, the next day, I picked her up at the hotel to take her to convocation, and she said, so did we win? I said, no. They, Carolina scored with like a minute left, and then they won in overtime. And she said, at least tell me Toronto lost. I said, no, at least one. She said, young man, you are very bad luck. You are never to speak people to hockey again, which was just—it's the greatest thing ever. So I mean, it's Brenda freaking Milner. I actually have a, an interview with Brenda Milner you can listen to um, that's on the the, the website. Uh, so now we got a model, Atkinson Shiffrin. We got physiological evidence. People said, look, we can study memory. And I wish to hell that someone would nominate her for a Nobel Prize because you can't get one pos- posthumously. And while she's amazing. She's 100 years old. And she should win a Nobel Prize. She's won everything but, basically, in science. You know, she's an ex- she helped invent cognitive neuroscience. Like It was like, oh, there's not a field. Well, I'll invent a field, and then I'll be the best at it ever. And I'll be a tiny little British woman who's a Montreal Canadian. And then she also told me she was very happy that the Montreal Alouettes moved to McGill Stadium from the Olympic Stadium, because the Montreal Neurological Institute looks out into the end zone of, of the stadium so she can watch the Alouettes play. It's like, oh God, I love you. <laughs> you like Montreal teams. You're Brandon Milner. So, today, so in the 70s, people are studying memory now and it becomes something people study all over the place. In fact, it's typical, it's very common in a bigger psych department that. A third of the people study memories so It's pretty common. Right? And, in fact, even if you look at us, like, I study memory. Paul studies memory. It's, eyewitness memory, but it's memory. Uh, Dwayne studies memory. Again, it's memory with, it's motor control of memory, but it's memory. Lori studies bird song, and birds have to remember, yeah, it's memory. You know, really, everybody does. So, I talked about tolving. A huge impact. Episodic versus semantic memory. Gus Craig. Uh, the most cited paper ever, and this this is on the list, it's only been cited about 11,000 times. And it's about the levels of processing. And Craig was the first author, and Lockhart, Bob Lockhart's the second author of that paper, uh, also studying levels of processing. Norm Slameka was one of the interesting holdouts. He was also... All these guys were at University of Toronto. When I was there, it was like... He was... He talked about... He was a verbal learning guy. And he was great. He used to make fun of Tolving's breakfast uh, and knowing what breakfast is analogy. I remember in a meeting when Tolving said, like in a... In a he was giving a talk, and Tolving said, knowing what breakfast is versus knowing what breakfast is, uh, what you have for breakfast. And I said, ah, oh, yes, the breakfast memory system, which was, I think, very funny. He also wore an ascot. And he'd always bum cigarettes off people, and he ripped the filters off them, because he was pretty hardcore. <laughs> but he wore an ascot, but then <coughs> he was something. He wasn't really mad Paul McLeod, who's now at Waterloo, was there as well. Um, Pretty important guy in the study of memory. Morris Moskowitz, uh, he's still around. Uh, Studies cognitive neuroscience. Look, these people are all Canadian, and they were all in Toronto when I was there. I was so lucky. Gordon Schachter, I talked with him, the Tolving student who said, you can call me Dr. Schachter. Larry Jacoby, Canadian connection. Sent his kid to Mac. No, he didn't, uh, he's American. Uh, Roddy Roediger. These are just off the top of my head. These are some of the most cited psychologists of the 20th century. Larry Squire. Elizabeth Loftus. And almost all these people are Canadian. All these people are Canadian. We're really good at this stuff. And Brendan Milner, Canadian. I don't know why we're good at this, but we're good at it. And all of these people were at Toronto when I was there, when I was in graduate school. And it was amazing because it was kind of like a, an all-star team. And you'd go to talks, and you're first-year master's student, and you'd just sit there going, do you know who that is? Do you know who that is? And you just list all these. It was amazing. The best part was when the U- University of Toronto st- has, a, has a meeting every Wednesday at noon, and I know they still do. Of the cognitive psychology group, that's called the House Empire. And though he's retired now, uh, retired from U of T, he now has appointments at like three American universities just to keep busy, because he's endotol. He had a seat. Now there was no assigned seats, but he had a seat. And it was, the speaker was here, and Endel sat here. And the best thing was the first day, because some dumb master student in his first year would sit there. And it was always a competition between the uh, first person to notice it first week or two. Like, Who wants to tell the, the, the new guy you don't sit there? And one year I got to do it, it was so much fun. I said, oh. That's Tolving's seat. You probably don't want to sit there. Guy looks at me like all the color goes out of his face. It was great. Pulping was intense. Still is intense as Also wrote me a letter of recommendation for my job, so thank you. Um, but, whereas Gus Gray is the total opposite, like completely relaxed and just funny as hell. And he used to make fun of the way I dressed, because it was the 90s, and I wore jeans with basically like now, except more like Kurt Cobain. One day he said to me, I'm glad you got dressed up for that talk today. <laughs> it's just wonderful. Anyway, we're really good at this. Memory has become this huge thing to study, and it's something that, as a rule, geez, I'd say more than half the students who do their honors thesis study memory somehow. You'll see this if you go to the honors thesis conference in uh, March. Questions? Ah, I guess we're done now. Thanks. Nice. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.ac.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, if call them show notes or blog posts so uh, you know buy these people's music they're they're making the stuff available out there uh, thanks everybody and we'll see you next time